Um, so when we were last here, we were talking about um, uh, kind of generally speaking, moving things across the phospholipid bilayer, right, in one way or another, okay? And the conversation centered around uh, two or three things. Uh, what kind of molecules can pass through, okay? And what are the details uh, that emerge when you try to pass different kinds of molecules across that membrane? Um, and whether or not you have to spend ATP to do that, all right? So what molecules get to go freely across the phospholipid bilayer? Small, nonpolar, okay? And they're gonna go across that membrane, whether you want them to or not, in the direction of high concentration or low concentration, okay? So if you have a high concentration of oxygen outside of the cell and you maintain a low concentration of oxygen inside of the cell, then those oxygen molecules are gonna diffuse into the cell freely, okay? Requiring no input of ATP on your part whatsoever. Likewise, if you keep a higher concentration of carbon dioxide, which is small and nonpolar, on the inside of the cell, higher concentration than you do have on the outside, right, then carbon dioxide is gonna freely and diffusively flow out of the cell, okay? And uh, we have about 21%, give or take, oxygen in the atmosphere today around us, right? Inside your cells, you have hmm, a lot less than that, right? You're constantly, uh, expiring that oxygen inside of your cells, you keep combining it with glucose and making ATP out of it, right? So you always have a higher concentration of oxygen outside of the cell than you have on the inside, so oxygen is always just kind of diffusing in. Likewise, you keep producing carbon dioxide as a byproduct of this uh, aerobic respiration. Um, you keep a higher concentration of carbon dioxide inside your cells than there is outside in the environment. There's less than 1% carbon dioxide out here. Um, in the environment. So carbon dioxide is always just kind of diffusing out. You don't have to actively transport oxygen or carbon dioxide out of your cells. Now you have to transport it to your lungs. That's sort of a separate issue, right? But the movement of those molecules across that phospholipid bilayer is completely free on your part. You don't have to invest any of your own energy into that. The universe sort of covers the bill and comps you for that. It's called diffusion. Do you have a question? Uh, it might, we might address it in the, in the, in the conversation today. Like, it, it, like, I saw a commercial yesterday, it was um, all about like CO2 is not the bad thing, and I thought CO2 emissions was like a horrible thing in the atmosphere, like greenhouse. Um, bad thing with respect to, um, like with respect to like greenhouse gases and things like that? It's, 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 it's bad, right? It's, it's a good greenhouse gas. Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is higher today than it's been any time in the last 200 years. It's not the worst greenhouse gas out there. Right, um, there, there are greenhouse gases that do a far, I don't know if I want to say better or worse, job of, of trapping solar radiation. Methane is horrendous, horrendously bad um, greenhouse gas. And just a little bit of methane can do a lot of damage to the environment, right? Yeah, a lot of cows, right? Um, the methanogenic bacteria in the gut, which are, you know, taking these, these cell walls apart. Um, uh, feed goes in one side and methane comes out the other, right? So most of it's from cow belching and cow, well, other end. Yeah, I mean, the, the cattle industry certainly plays a role in, in greenhouse gas emissions um, from all the methane that's going up. And it, it's a much more effective greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is. But we're putting a lot more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere than methane, so you kind of have to evaluate the overall effect of both. But methane is, is bad. Um, if you find yourself on the bottom of a mine shaft, for example, uh, trapped in the bottom of a mine in West Virginia or Pennsylvania, it happens all the time, right? Um, 
if you lose those ste that steepness of those concentration gradients by either lowering atmospheric oxygen or increasing atmospheric carbon dioxide, then the rate of that diffusion is going to slow, okay? Because you're not actively transporting oxygen and carbon dioxide, you're really just moving that across those membranes at the rate of, of diffusion. If you start messing with atmospheric oxygen, if, if atmospheric oxygen goes down from 21% to maybe 15 or 10, it's still going to diffuse into your cells, but at a much slower rate, okay? And if that happens at a rate that's slower than what your mitochondria need in order to produce enough ATP to keep you alive, then uh, death will soon follow. Likewise, um, if carbon dioxide levels in the environment start to go up, then the carbon dioxide is not gonna be diffusing out of you at a fast enough rate, and you're gonna start keep getting a high level of CO2 in your body, and you're gonna start getting kind of acidic. You're gonna start making a lot of carbonic acid, and that doesn't bode well for carrying oxygen around your body with your hemoglobin, right? So it's not just running out of oxygen in an environment um, that, that you might get trapped in. It's also, you know, excessive CO2 is going to affect the rate of gas diffusion into and out of your cells, right? So you have to think about both of them. So if it's not a polar or nonpolar, or if it's not a nonpolar small molecule, then it's going to have to be assisted in one way or another, right? Not necessarily, okay, ATP requiring, uh, but assisted nonetheless. With molecules like glucose, where you keep using your mitochondria, you keep using it, okay, you keep breaking it apart, you maintain a low concentration of glucose inside your cells and a higher concentration in your, uh, in your bloodstream, in your interstitial fluids and things like that. Um, if it could, glucose would go ahead and diffuse into your cells. It cannot diffuse into your cells. It's big and it's polar, okay? If you provide a channel for it, however, it can go ahead and diffuse in, right? So as long as they're going down a concentration gradient, you don't have to invest ATP. That's a little different from whether or not you have to have a dedicated protein to assist it across the membrane. Now, if we're talking about ions that have a charge that can't diffuse through and we wanna get all of a particular ion out of or into a cell, like getting all the sodium out, getting all the chlorine out or something like that, um, then we have two problems, okay? Um, it, we have to use ATP to get it across the membrane because it has a charge, right? And we also have to use ATP to get it across the membrane because we're building a concentration gradient. Okay, so the cystic fibrosis, getting all of the chloride out uh, of a cell is going to require ATP because we're going against that concentration gradient. The chloride would prefer to equilibrate, okay, and come up with some sort of diffusive equilibrium. We want to get all of the chloride out, so we need to maintain a concentration gradient, and that requires the input of ATP, all right? So whether or not um, a molecule can diffuse in to a cell or not, has everything to do with the direction of the concentration gradient and its size and its polarity. Okay, so small nonpolar things can pass unimpeded and unaided through the phospholipid bilayer as it goes down a concentration gradient. Okay, everything else needs either a dedicated protein channel and or ATP if it's going up a concentration gradient to go. Okay, is all this sound familiar? You're gonna be working a lot with diffusion today in the, uh, in the lab, okay? You're gonna see demonstrated examples of osmosis and, and diffusion and all that kind of stuff. So um, we'll move on to cellular anatomy here and we'll leave more diffusion conversations for the lab here in a little bit, okay? Unless there are any questions about diffusion or transport. So active transport, passive transport, all these kinds of uh, things you should be pretty well versed in by now. Sound good? Okay. Uh, so, 
sell parts, okay? This whole last conversation that we had, this last lecture and a half pretty much, was the membrane and all things uh, having to do with the membrane. Now we're kind of moving to the inside. This is going to be kind of a, a, a touristy view of the cell. We're, we're driving around inside of the cell and looking out the windows in different directions. And on your right, you have the endoplasmic reticulum. On the left, you have the Golgi, right? Uh, the first thing we're going to look at, ladies and gentlemen, on your right, we have the nucleus. It is not, it is not pronounced nucleus any more than we detonate nuclear bombs, okay? Nucleus, okay, is how you pronounce that. Um, and it holds two things, okay? It houses your genome, for one. Yeah, that's kind of important, okay? Um, it's the place where your genome is housed. And it also houses a structure or a couple of structures that collectively are referred to as the nucleolus, okay? I should write that on the board, just so you know how to spell it. Oh, yeah, it is right there. Okay. Nucleolus. Never mind. False alarm. No chalk. When you look at uh, cells in a microscope, which you'll do next week, um, you'll see the nucleolus in there. It stains this really, really dark blue, dark purple kind of color. And you're going to see these really um, kind of rigid-looking granular structures inside of the cell. Okay? And you'll be tempted to think that that is the nucleus. And it's actually not. Those opaque purple structures are the nucleolus you can see this really faint membrane on the outside of those nucleoli, which represents the nuclear envelope, okay? And that's going to represent the, the nucleus, right? So don't confuse the nucleus with the nucleolus. The nucleus is an organelle that houses the genome. And within that, you also have nucleoli, plural, a nucleolus, singular, okay? Um, the nucleus is kind of odd, right, when compared to many of the other organelles because it has a double phospholipid bilayer, okay? So here is a phospholipid bilayer membrane right here, and it has another one. It's double stacked, okay? Um, usually when something has a thicker exterior like this, uh, and I say, so why do you think it has a double membrane? Students usually say, why have a double membrane around your genome? Yeah, protection, right? It's the P word, right? It's, it's the, uh, the default null hypothesis for just about everything in biology that you don't have an, explana an explanation for, right? Um, uh, why do you have skin? Protection, protection right? Um, so if, uh, against what? You know, so if, there's, if, there, if you're using your skin to protect you against bacteria, if there are no bacteria, do you still need skin? So if there's no bacteria, you can get rid of your skin, right? It would be gross and probably not altogether correct statement, right? So um, you don't necessarily have skin for protection, right? Um, it's an added benefit of your skin, right? Um, the nucleus probably has an added benefit of rigidity and durability with that. Um, it's not necessarily correct, however, to say that the nucleus is double-membraned for protection. I mean, porcupines have spines for protection, all right? Um, armadillos have plates for protection. Right? You do not have skin for protection. This is not necessarily, I mean, when you talk about protection as a hypothesis, you have to say protection against what? Okay? If this is a nice double membrane and it's nice and durable, what is your genome being protected from? Things, stuff out there, you know. It, it does, right? Um, and that will give it okay, a, I don't want to say resiliency, right? But if something is trying to get in here, it's going to have a harder time doing so because it has two layers to get through instead of just one. That's not necessarily the same thing as saying 
um, it's double membrane for protection, right? You're going to look at some other organelles that are double, double membrane, and they will have absolutely nothing to do with protection at all. Okay, so stay tuned. So keep this in mind, but don't just think that you know why that is. Um, this question about why the nucleus is double membrane still gets talked about quite a lot, actually, trying to figure out why exactly that is. All right, so stay tuned on that. Don't feel like you know all the answers to the double membrane thing. Um, you will see that in the nucleus, however, there are a lot of pores, okay? There are a lot of small uh, channels that uh, go into and out of, or lead from the outside to the inside of the nucleus and vice versa, okay? Um, and they're very important to have, right? There's a couple of things that you need to pass through these pores in both directions, all right? Um, and in order to explain this, I will use my document camera. Check your source, document camera, all right. Can we see? I always go back and forth between preferring backlit and frontlit. It seems like every time I do that, it just sort of automatically adjusts to uh, something that is not ideal. Oh, that's not bad. Let's crank it all the way up. Can we see? I haven't driven anything yet. Okay, pardon my bad drawing. Okay, so here's a nuclear envelope. Okay, and here we have a nuclear pore. All right? We can kind of go like this and kind of infer a double membrane there if you'd like to. Uh, you have a couple of things in here. You have, first of all, and fairly importantly, you have, what is that you think? Yeah, it's a genome, right? Um, in its nice unwound state. And you also have that thing, which is the nucleolus, okay? Now, out here in the cytoplasm and all this region out here, you have these little double-structured organelles called ribosomes, okay? And it is on the ribosomes that you construct polypeptides, okay? So you already know that the information for primary protein sequence is here. That's what the DNA is, right? And you're going to build those proteins out here on the ribosomes. Um, good example of what a ribosome is. Um, if you're building something, okay, and you have go to Ikea, get a, a couch or something like that, you'll have a workbench that you'll work on, and you'll have all the parts in front of you, and you'll have the instructions. Okay, um, the bench that you actually do the assembly on, okay, your workbench, that's the equivalent of a ribosome. Okay, so when you get that information from the DNA and you're grabbing amino acids and putting them down in the right order to give you primary protein sequence, that reaction is happening on a workbench, which is called a ribosome. Okay, so that's where primary protein sequence, uh, that's where proteins are assembled, on these ribosomes. So you need to get information from in here to out here. If you make really big proteins in here in your nucleus, you've got a problem, don't you? Where do you need your proteins? You need them out here, okay? If you build them in here, if you build them in here, they're stuck, okay? So you need to get the information from that genome out here to where the ribosomes are. So what you do, this, this, black, this is red. You will unwind your genome, okay? Separate those strands, and you will make a small molecule of 
messenger RNA. You will then take this small tidbit of messenger RNA and you will thread it through a nuclear pore out here to a ribosome. That messenger RNA strand will then attach to a ribosome. You'll start the translation process, converting, or I, I should say translating between the messenger RNA sequence and the primary protein sequence that you want. You'll start gathering amino acids out of the environment, and you'll start building a protein uh, as you go down that chain on that ribosome. Okay. Now, something else you need to do um, in order to get these proteins constructed, you actually have to build the ribosomes themselves, okay? Um, ribosomal components, those two little subunits we call them for ribosomes, are built and generated on the nucleolus, okay? So if you take an entire ribosome and look at how big it is, an entire ribosome will not fit through one of these nuclear pores. You'll have to build them as the individual subunits and then move the individual subunits out of a nuclear pore and out into the cytoplasm. Right? So it's kind of goofy in that way that you're building proteins out here in the cytoplasm, so you need all the stuff to build a protein out there in the cytoplasm. You need to get genetic information out there, and you need to get ribosomes out there. Right? All that stuff originates here in the nucleus. So you have to get a strand of messenger RNA that you're going to construct off of that DNA, thread that messenger RNA through okay, a nuclear pore to the cytoplasm, then you need to get those two ribosomal subunits that you're going to construct on the nucleolus, get those fed through a nuclear pore. Everything will assemble together, and you'll start building proteins out here where you need them. Okay? So that's what's going on. So you can think about advantages and disadvantages of taking your DNA and sequestering it inside uh, of the nucleus. Right, what are the advantages of having a nucleus? Well, your DNA is kind of sequestered away, and it's hard to get to, and it's kind of protected quote-unquote, back there, um, and that's a good thing. However, when you do that, you kind of create some very specific problems for yourself, right? You need to build proteins not inside of the nucleus. You need to build those proteins out in the cytoplasm. So soon, right, as you sequester all that stuff away, you give yourself a, a pretty good task uh, of having to migrate all of that information, all those structures out into the cytoplasm so you can build the thing. So that's a disadvantage of having a nucleus, right? It makes protein synthesis a little more complicated than it would be if you were, say, bacteria, all right? Um, uh, any questions about that? It's called transcription and translation, that whole process of making an RNA strand, sending that RNA out into the, in the cytoplasm, and then getting primary protein sequence from it. We'll talk a lot more about transcription and translation uh, later on uh, in the semester. I'm not going to belabor it too much. I just wanted to give you an introduction of what's actually going on in the nucleus. If you want to think about what your nucleus is actually doing and the role that it plays, you don't want to think about it as this active dynamic thing that is, you know, directing the course of action for the entire cell. It's, it's more like a, a warehouse. It's more like the Library of Congress. Does anybody have a Library of Congress card? I have a Library of Congress card, right? I use their genealogical resources uh, quite frequently, actually. Um, does this mean that just like any other kind of library card, it can go in the Library of Congress and check out a book and walk out the front door with it? No, you cannot check books out of the library. This is not Arlington Public Library, right? Uh, you cannot check books out of, the, out of the Library of Congress. It's there, and you can go in there and use it, but you can't check anything out of it. So if I want to get some information from inside of the library to the outside, 
right? I have to go in there, okay? And I need to do one of two things. I either need to make a copy, right, which is, is the equivalent of a messenger RNA strand, right? Or I need to get out a piece of paper and I need to write something down, right? Transcribe information from a book onto a piece of paper and walk out the door of the library with that. So I want that information out in the greater Washington, D.C. area, but it's all sequestered, high-density packed, right, in the Library of Congress. If I want to get that information out that nuclear pore, a la door, okay, of the Library of Congress, I need to make a copy and walk it out. Okay, so think about your nucleus more like that, more like the Library of Congress. It really is a warehouse for sequestering information. What the library, what purpose does it serve to have all that information crammed together in one place? Protection, right? Uh, you know, here we go again, right? Um, get every, all the information together in one place where it can be looked over, watched over, protected, sequestered, and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, if you want to keep that information safe, you want to open and close those books as, as infrequently as possible, right? Every, pro, every time you want to make a single protein, you don't need to reaccess the DNA. If you can make a strand of messenger RNA and send that messenger RNA out into the cytoplasm, you can read 50, 100, you can read that 200 times, right? You can make multiple proteins off of that one strand of messenger RNA. You don't have to keep winding and unwinding your DNA strand. You only have to unwind it once, make the messenger RNA, and then you can read a lot of proteins off of that. So by going through this mechanism, it's obviously more complicated, right? But you decrease the risk of accidental damage. Every time you unwind that 2 billion, 3 billion base, base pair sequence molecule, you run risk of doing damage to it. Right? Uh, the fewer times you can do that, the better off you're going to be in the long run. Right? So it, it's complicating that you have to go through all of this process to make a protein, um, but you end up having less chances of damaging your DNA in the constant unwinding, rewinding process by doing it that way as well. Advantages and disadvantages to everything. None really outweigh the other. It's just a different way of doing stuff. Uh, some proteins you make daily, some proteins you make once in your life. As many times as you need to, which is not an actual answer to that question. Um, I, I, could th I can think of a lot of ways to speak to that without answering, actually answering it, because I actually don't know what the number is. Um, but more for some proteins than others. Um, like I said, some maybe daily, others once in your lifetime. Right, growth hormones for when you hit puberty, you'll make those proteins once. You know, there's not a, not a set number. Is the ideal answer is as infrequently as possible. All right, nucleus. Do you have a new uh, appreciation for this organelle called the nucleus and what it's doing? Yes. No. Yes. All right. Good. We'll talk more about the nucleus and what the nucleus does, like I said, when we talk about transcription and translation later on, and when we talk about cell division and mitosis and things like that, right? For, for now, let's just appreciate it for what it does as an organelle and, and kind of move on to some of the, some of the others, all right? Uh, part number three, right? So I'm going through these three things that all cells have in common, right? A place to store the DNA, the membrane, and everything in between. We knocked out the first two. Now let's do the everything in between. In a prokaryote, um, it's complex. There's a lot of stuff in a prokaryote cell, right? So I don't necessarily want to call it simple. A lot of good reactions happen in prokaryotes all the time. So I don't want to, like I said, I don't want to oversimplify it by saying, oh, not much, right? But with, in, a, in a eukaryote, obviously, there are more different types of things in there, right? Reactions are uh, parceled out by function into different kinds of structures that we're going to call an organelle, okay? If we want to think about some advantages to organelles, 
we can say, well, let, let's say that this room is a cell. I like to do that every once in a while, right? Everything from uh, this part of the room on over, um, you all have the same task. You're going to take some, uh, some Legos and you're going to make big complicated Lego chains out of them, okay? Everybody from here on over, you're going to have another task. Your task is going to be to take Lego chains apart, all right? So you guys are putting Legos together. You guys are taking Legos apart. We good? All right. So let's say uh, we just kind of, we're a prokaryote. We just kind of have you out there uh, doing what you're going to do. How many big complex Lego chains are we going to get uh, built ultimately? If you're all together operating in the same time, the same place, you're going to make a whole lot of big complex stuff? Not really. You guys are going to be making Lego chains. You guys are going to be taking them apart at the same time. You're not going to make a heck of a lot. Or we can separate these reactions into organelles, right? We can encapsulate you guys and keep you guys separate from you guys. If we want to build some big complex chains, we can say, hey, you guys, why don't you go ahead and make some stuff, right? And these guys are not interacting with you. They're separate from you, right? They're just kind of doing what they're doing, but elsewhere. You can make some big complex stuff over here. Likewise, if we just ate uh, lunch, which someone, anybody just eat anything? No one, what'd you have? That'll do it, right? Uh, so you have uh, some molecules that are working their way through your gastrointestinal tract, right? Eventually, they're going to enter a cell somewhere in your small intestines and in your body. And you'll want to take some of those big molecules and we'll start breaking them apart. You would then want to employ the use of these individuals over here, right, to take some of those big proteins apart, okay? So um, you can, if you keep those reactions separate from each other, you can more carefully and more directedly uh, change the course. Uh, of, of who's doing what at any given time. You can direct the course of action more effectively, all right? Um, if you have cells in your body that you want to use for primarily for digestion, things like your stomach, right, or your small intestines, large intestine, things like that, you would want to have cells that has a lot of them, okay? Has a lot of these digestive enzymes in them, a lot of those kinds of organelles. If you're in a place in your body where you're trying to build a lot of proteins, like in your stomach where you're building a lot of digestive enzymes, or in your muscles where you're building a lot of muscle fibers and things like that, we would want to have a lot of you guys over here, right, where it can make big complex chains and maybe fewer of these. By separating your reactions into organelles, you can overload different cell types with one kind of organelle um, versus another. If you have a region of your body where you want to make a lot of proteins, you can just kind of have an, an organelle with a lot of this stuff, right? Or if you're doing something else, you might want to overload on, on these guys over there, right? Which gives you the ability to make different types of tissues, which gives you the ability to make different kinds of organs, right? So when you think about um, what an organ is, right, or what a tissue is, it's a lot of the same kind of cell doing the same kind of things to the same ends, right? Your liver is doing something, your kidneys are doing something different, right? What gives you the ability to do that is by overloading and underloading these cells selectively within your body with different kinds of organelles. And you'll get a better sense of what kind of organelles you might expect to find in different places as we go through it. So why can't you be a big, complex, multicellular, prokaryote-based organism? You don't have that ability, right, to custom tailor your cells uh, to different kinds of reactions as easily, right? You can't overload with one organelle and underload with another. If you're a prokaryote, you don't have the mechanisms in place to do that, to do that biochemical sequestering of function and form. Right? So more reasons why eukaryotes are big and complicated. The downsize is, right, it takes a lot of energy to do that, right? Uh, if you're going to direct all that course of action and things like that, you're going to have to spend quite a lot of ATP making sure things go in, into different places. And another downside to doing things that way, um, you're going to have to have the genes 
to make the proteins do all of these kind of things in every cell of the body. Okay, so if you're going to have different kinds of cells in the body that do different things and making different proteins, you're going to have to have a really, really big genome. Okay, and once you start evolving multi-celled eukaryote organisms, the size of the genome pretty much doubles. About half your genome, give or take, a lot large margin of error on that, right, is dedicated um, to uh, regions of the cell that are not actually in the cell that the DNA is found in, right? Um, you have the genes for how to make uh, your eyes in your stomach. Okay, you're just not accessing that DNA. You have to have the complete genome in every cell in your body. So you end up with a really, really big genome. Okay, each individual cell has the complete copy for making everything that you need. And you have a lot of stuff. Yes, Jessica? I mean, you have a lot of parts. Yes? You do, trust me, just smiling now, right? You do, right? Uh, so uh, you need to have every protein sequence that you can make coded in, every, in the DNA of every cell of your entire body in order to do that. So you end up with this ridiculously huge 46 chromosomed, uh, you know, two and a half, three billion base pair long uh, genome. And every time you synthesize that, right, you're creating order from disorder by making a large complex strand. It's going to take a lot of DNA, uh, a lot of ATP to do that. So that is the cost, right? Um, do the cost outweigh the benefits? Not really. It's just different ways of doing stuff. Speak. There is. Every cell, every cell in your body has a complete copy. It happens all the time, right? Um, if you, there actually was an exhibit at the, um, a lot of times uh, tumorous growths will have teeth, things like that. Um, yeah, you start inappropriately making different body parts all the time. Eyes are an extreme. Right? Um, it takes a lot of genes to make an eye, uh, but you can inappropriately turn on a suite of genes and have very, very strange things happening, right? In different parts of your body, you know, gross things, you know, grotesque, grotesque things, you know, uh, like literally teeth within tumors and, and stuff like that. Yeah, and hair, right? I mean, it's not, it seems to be one of the easier things to actually misplace. Hair. And the bodies exhibit in Arlington. Anybody see that about two years ago? Um, it was in Arlington. And they had some pretty interesting things growing out of tumors uh, there. Second question. Or what? Tissues. What about them? I don't have any tissues. <laughs> well, you have four types. You have your epithelial tissues. You can blow your nose on that, right? Uh, you have connective tissues. You can blow your nose with those, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Everybody's a comic. Um, so we can take most of our organelles that we have inside of our cells and we can kind of classify them as this larger, uh, this larger kind of suite of organelles that we're going to call the endomembrane system. All right. Um, we'll kind of work away from the inside out. Okay. Closest to the nucleus, you have the endoplasmic reticulum, okay, of which there are two varieties. There's the rough ER and the smooth ER, um, named for their appearance. When you look at rough ER, it looks uh, stippled and roughened. Okay, it's not a smooth, uh, a smooth structure. Um, when it is a smooth structure, we refer to it as smooth ER. Okay, um, you have the Golgi, which used to be called the Golgi apparatus. Um, now we usually just call it Golgi bodies or just the Golgi. You have lysosomes, which you use to digest things. Okay, um, if you remember your, um, your, your translations from different languages, anything that is lysed, lysis, hydrolysis, things like that. Anytime you lyse something, you split it or you break it. 
Okay, so a lysosome is an organelle that is responsible for splitting things apart, right? So it's a digestive organelle. Earlier when we were, we had that picture up of uh, one of those cells uh, kind of in engulfing that parasitic worm, that, lysis, that, uh, that uh, vesicle that that worm is now in is probably going to be fused with a lysosome somewhere and digested, okay? Um, and the peroxisomes, which are good for detoxification, okay? That's what peroxides do. They're good oxidizers. Um, if you end up uh, with some fairly noxious or toxic things in your body and you need to detoxify it and kind of uh, take those molecules apart of it, you can fuse it with a peroxisome, right? Uh, and then it'll start taking those, those toxins apart. Peroxide is some pretty uh, effervescent reactive stuff. All right. So we'll go through each one of these, starting with the endoplasmic reticulum. The rough ER is rough because it has ribosomes attached to it. Okay, so what does that tell you about the kind of functions that occur in the rough ER? What happens there a lot? Yeah, you make a lot of proteins in the rough ER. Okay, anywhere there's a ribosome, ribosomes only do one thing, right? Anytime or any place you have a lot of ribosomes, you're going to be making a lot of proteins. So ribosomes can be in both places, right? You can have free-floating ribosomes out in the cytoplasm. Or you can have ribosomes attached to the rough ER. If you're going, remember when we were talking about transmembrane proteins uh, last class and we were talking about how they're kept into place, a la the fluid mosaic model, how you have the protein that spans the phospholipid bilayer, okay? And on either side uh, where the hydrophilic heads are, you have polar R groups and in the middle where you have the hydrophobic tails, you have nonpolar R groups. Remember that? Vaguely? Anybody? Um, what we didn't talk about at the time was how you actually build a protein to span the membrane like that. How do you get it into place in the first, uh, in the first place? Okay? How do you make a transmembrane protein that is locked into place? How do you get that protein inserted into that phospholipid? You do it on the rough ER. Okay? So transmembrane proteins, generally speaking, right, are going to be initially assembled and put into their phospholipid bilayer as part of the rough ER and then compacted as a vesicle and moved out, okay, to that membrane. We'll talk about how that happens in just a bit, okay? So uh, proteins made by ribosomes on the surface um, get either infused, right, or extruded to the inside of the, of the rough ER um, or kind of stuck in a transmembrane way to the, uh, to the rough ER um, itself. Now, with all of these endomembrane organelles, they're all made of the same thing, right? The, the membranes of them are all phospholipid, which means you can mix and match, right? You can take a vesicle out of the rough ER and you can fuse it with the smooth ER. You can fuse it with the Golgi. You can fuse it with the cytoplasm, right? Or, or the, the, the cell membrane, right? Because we're all talking about structures that are made out of phospholipid bilayer, you can kind of take pieces of one and fuse it with another without having to worry about are the parts compatible or not, right? All the parts of the endomembrane system are made of phospholipid bilayer. So you can make vesicles out of one and fuse it with another and interchange parts easily. This is going to be handy. We'll talk about how you can get some advantages out of this in just a bit. Okay, so that's the rough ER, protein-based stuff, okay? The smooth ER, no ribosomes equals no protein making at all, okay? Um, with the smooth ER, we're talking about making lipids primarily, okay? If I wanted to pull some cells out of your body and I wanted to look for cells that have a lot of rough ER, where would I look? From where would I harvest cells? Where do you make a lot of proteins? Stomach, Stomach muscles, 
right? Places where you build a lot of protein, uh, protein material, right? If I wanted to get a cell out of you to look at under a microscope that has a lot of proteins, I would look in those kinds of places. Where am I making enzymes, okay? If I wanted to find a cell in your body that has a lot of smooth ER, where would I look? Where are you synthesizing a lot of fats? Remember what I was talking about? Um, let's say I ate 9,000 calories worth of pasta, and if I don't use that, I'm going to convert it into fat. Where does that happen? And we store it in the adipose, right? Where do we do that conversion? Where do you store glycogen? Liver, right? You'll find cells with a lot of smooth ER in places like the liver, okay? Um, the smooth ER also destroys toxins, right? A lot of peroxisomes and things like that in those cells in the liver. So what does your liver do? When you think about what your liver does, it does two things. Detox, right? Filter, you know, quote unquote, filter slash detox, and you do that conversion between fats and sugars. Of course, you're gonna find a huge amount of smooth ER. If you have a cell that has a lot of smooth ER in it, that's what that cell is going to primarily do, right? It's gonna be converting between fats and sugars, and it's gonna be doing a lot of detox. That's what smooth ER does, right? So there's a relationship between what organs in your body do what, right, and how the organelles are distributed amongst them, okay? What purpose would be served by having liver cells with a lot of proteins? That's not what you need your liver to do, right? Uh, you need to do something else. Okay, good. Smooth ER and rough ER, we good? All right. Uh, moving outward from that, Okay, um, so if you, well, let me go back. If you look at this schematic, it actually is kind of organized uh, to, uh, to reality in one way or another. Here's our nuclear envelope right there with the pores on it. The rough ER is actually continuous with the nucleus. It actually is physically attached, okay? Um, the smooth ER will exist right outside of the rough ER. Usually kind of off to the side or even farther out from the nucleus from there, you'll get the Golgi, okay? <coughs> The Golgi is playing intermediary between the endoplasmic reticulum and the cell membrane. That's what the Golgi does, okay? Um, it's not, can, those individual stacks of membranes that form the Golgi are not connected to each other. If you're in the rough ER or even the smooth ER, if you're in one level of it and you wanna go to a next, the next level up or farther out from the nucleus, you can do that by going through the inside, right? All those stacks of ER are connected to each other. With the Golgi, that's not the case. Okay, each one of those stacks is discrete and separate from the one before it, all right? Uh, so it's a stack of membranous sacs, uh, which is very, very difficult to say, so I'm not going to say it any longer. Um, what the Golgi will do, it will take pinched off vesicles that contain either lipids or proteins from the smooth and the rough ER, um, and it will internalize them. You can fuse that vesicle from the smooth or the rough ER with one of the Golgi sacs, okay, and spill those contents off into the inside. Remember those old, uh, no you don't, never mind. Um, there's this guy, he used to be on the Johnny Carson show on a fairly regular basis. Now I'm going even going back to when I was a kid, right? Um, and he would be smoking a cigarette and he would have um, some bubble, a bubble blower that he would use, right? And he would smoke, take a, you know, take a, a, a drag off of his cigarette and he would blow bubbles. And you would end up with these bubbles that had a lot of smoke in them. They're really, really weird, okay? You can envision this bubbles with a lot of smoke or something like that inside of them. You could then blow a really big bubble, okay? And if you fuse those bubbles together, okay, and just kind of made the smoky bubble continuous with the larger bubble, 
If you did that, that smoky stuff, right, would just kind of be spilled out to the inside of the larger bubble. That's what we're talking about here, okay? If you make some proteins and you encapsulate them in a vesicle in the rough ER, you take that vesicle and infuse it with the Golgi, those components are then spilled out into the Golgi itself. And the phospholipid that formed the vesicle is now part of the Golgi membrane, okay? It's all phospholipid, so all those parts are nice and interchangeable with each other. You can do that. All right, so these vesicles are arriving from the ER, both smooth and rough, and they're going to the Golgi. Sometimes you just don't need a protein. Sometimes you don't just need a fat. Sometimes you need things like glycolipids, okay, a combination of a fat and a sugar, or glycoprotein, a combination of a protein and a sugar, all right? Um, if you want to make some of those larger composite molecules like glycoproteins, glycolipids, things like that, those combinations get constructed in the Golgi, okay? So you take the raw materials that are constructed in the smooth or the rough ER, and you kind of glue them together, repackage them together into kind of final form active uh, kind of things that you might need. Now, you might use those inside of the cell, and that's fine. Or you might want to take that stuff and send it out uh, to the interstitial fluid, send it outside of the cell. If you want to do that, that's fine. You just take a, make a new vesicle off of the Golgi, send it out, fuse it with the cell membrane, and spill those things out to the outside of the cell. Or you can keep it inside of the cell and do something with it there as well. All right. The Golgi is actually also the place where we make lysosomes. Okay. So if we're going to be making some of these digestive enzymes that we're going to be using to digest our food and things like that, those are made uh, in the Golgi as well. So you would expect a lot of Golgi in places like the small intestine um, and the duodenum where you're doing a lot of digesting. All right. So looking at our anatomy, I believe these images are lifted right out of your book. Looking at some of the cellular anatomy and where we are so far, here we have the nucleus. All right. And here we have the rough ER, which surrounds it immediately. The first thing that you see as you start working your way out from the nucleus is, is rough ER. Now, earlier I kind of said you can kind of relatively adjust the weight of different organelles in your cells for different things. All cells will have all organelles. I mean, all cells need to maintain these basic qualities and, and, and reactions of life. So all the cells will have all of these organelles, just some will have more organelles than others is, is the way that it's actually going to be, right? Um, once you start getting out of the rough ER and out past the smooth ER, which isn't listed here, then you'll get the Golgi. And here you can see this process, okay, of fusing some of these vesicles with the Golgi. So here we have a, some rough ER with ribosomes on it, and we've just made some proteins. We're going to encapsulate those proteins in a vesicle, this blue thing right here, and we're going to go ahead and work on that in the Golgi. So we're going to send that vesicle up from the rough ER, or this is actually a smooth ER here, isn't it, right? From the smooth ER up here to the innermost stack, right, of the Golgi. This innermost region of the Golgi is referred to as the cis side, okay? The outermost side of the Golgi is referred to as the trans side. As we process these materials, they will enter it on the cis side, they will get processed and they will exit from the trans side. So to get from this innermost stack right here to the outermost stack, it can't just kind of work its way through the inside. From each step along the way, a vesicle has to get made and it needs to get literally kind of thrown from one stack to the other, right? So it will get passed in the vesicle from one stack to the next, from one stack to the next, from one stack up to the next until it reaches the trans phase. Okay, once it's on the trans side, then it's done. Right? And you can go ahead and take that vesicle, send it into the cell for whatever you're going to do. 
you can send it out through the plasma membrane for whatever you need to do as well. All right. So this process of migrating these vesicles from the cis side to the trans side is referred to as cis-trans migration. Vesicles will migrate from the cis side to the trans side. So if you want to sound smart and give your parents and siblings and all that the impression that you're really getting your money's worth, you can go home and talk about cis-trans migration. It's one of the smartest sounding phrases you can learn in biology 101. All right, um, this gives us a bit of a problem, though, that uh, some of you might be seeing here. Uh, if we keep pulling material off of the innermost face and fusing it with the next one up and down the line, eventually we're going to lose all of the cis Golgi, and we're just going to end up with one big uh, flat stack, right, that everything is fusing into on the trans side, right? The more we do this, the more we're going to be pulling material out of the cis side, pulling phospholipid bilayer off of the cis side and fusing it to the trans side. Eventually, we're not going to have any cis left, right? You see this problem? I mean, if we keep, if, I mean, if we do something in this room, if each row here is a stack of Golgi, okay, and this is the cis side and this is the trans side, you work on some stuff over here, right, and then you pass it to you guys, and then you work on it, and you pass it to this way, and you work on it, you pass it this way. You work on it, you pass it this way, and you, then you guys do something with it over here. Eventually, we're going to run out of stuff on this side. Yes? I mean, every time we want to move something, one of you three people has to move it over to this, this side. There's only three over here. We can make three vesicles before we're, we're out of cis face, right? So eventually, we need to make a vesicle out of somebody on this side of the room, and you need to come back over and take a place back on the other side, right? So it goes in two directions, right? These vesicles will be containing the products of their reaction, starting with the cis side and working their way to the trans side as their process. And then you need to replenish your original stock of phospholipid, right, and reactive enzymes on the, on the cis side by taking a vesicle from the trans side and really just sending it back around and fusing it back with the cis face to replenish. Right. Um, so as organelles go, it's always kind of in, in sort of fluid state of uh, moving back and forth. Oh, my goodness. What did I do? I don't know what I just did. Hang tough. Is it? All right. Is that a wardrobe malfunction there on the slide? All right. Um, cis transmigration, the Golgi. So that's not, that's not happening with the smooth and the rough ER, right? They're all kind of, the smooth and rough ER are kind of static things, and they're attached. They're, only, they're, they're all one kind of continuous organelle, not so the Golgi, right? It's a stack of, of different kinds of enzymes, and each stack is going to do a different level of processing, and you just kind of work your way down that stack, and it's completely and, and continuously recycled, okay? Eventually, an organelle is going to come off that transphase, and a lot of times it's going to be sent out of the cell. Sometimes it's going to be fused with the cell membrane, Sometimes it's going to be used within the cell. Now, what's weird is if I took a single cell of yours, okay, and I stained all of uh, the phospholipids of the Golgi within that cell, eventually some of that Golgi phospholipid is going to be made into a vesicle and sent somewhere else in the body and fused with something else, right? Those phospholipids, okay, from a single cell in your body will be constantly and continuously reworked throughout all the cells of your entire body, okay? So... When you think about the cell being the unit of life here, right, even the phospholipids get passed and exchanged between one cell and another. After a couple of weeks, I'll be able to find that stained phospholipid from that one cell everywhere 
in your body as vesicles are swapped back and forth between different things. So again, it's not the structure that makes you, right? It's the organization of the molecules and the, and the enzymes and the energy conversion that actually makes you a living thing. That phospholipid is just containment of the, of the, living, organi of, of the living reactions or the reactions that make you alive to begin with. Okay? So you're swapping material between cells all the time, even on the structural phospholipid-based way. What do you think? You're pretty transient, right? Um, and of course, these other statements that you replace all of your carbon every six years or you know, some of these other, other statements like that all make perfect sense, right? Um, you're, you're very transient and recyclable. Even during the course of your life, it's not just living and dying. All right. All right. Um, so lysosomes, you know, keeping on with our theme of the, the endomembrane system. Vesicle-containing digestive enzymes. We've talked about these, uh, the, these already a bit, right? Uh, you can make these in, the, uh, uh, in these in parts of the endomembrane system. Anytime you need to, uh, to digest something, you can make a lysosome. And again, just like with our, our smoke example with the bubbles, you can take a, a, a vesicle with lysosomes and a vesicle with whatever you had in it for uh, whatever lunch you had, right, that you endocytosed, okay, you phagocytose. You can combine that phagocytosis vesicle with the lysosome vesicle, right, and spill those contents together, and whatever is inside that vesicle um, will then start to disintegrate and digest. Okay, into really small components that you can either then spill out, uh, remove through the kidneys, or you can take it, a, if it's a protein, you can take it apart into individual amino acids and build your own proteins out of it. Use it for raw materials, right? So lysosomes. Fuses with vesicle containing bacteria, old cell parts, uh, food particles, whatever it is, and digests them, right? So parts of your organelles uh, will stop working and they'll quote unquote die all the time and they need to be removed and recycled and, uh, and cleansed from your body, right? And you, uh, you will fuse uh, a lysosome to do that. It's thought that lysosomes might be one of the primary mechanisms of cell death. When you were growing in your poor mother's womb, um, you had webbed fingers, right? And webbed toes and a little tail and all that kind of stuff. And eventually those went away, okay, via programmed cell death, okay? Those cells in the, in, that formed those webs between your fingers eventually died and disintegrated. Um, one of the ways you can make a cell die and disintegrate is by taking a lysosome and spill its components out into the cytoplasm, and the cell then uh, digests itself and dissolves. Right? So, well, then you get born with webbed fingers and webbed toes, right? Which happens frequently. And I heard one every one out of every couple thousand people is born with a, a rudimentary tail. It's more that that's more common than you think, right? So, yeah, somebody on, somebody on the Nova campus right now was probably born with a tail. Whether they still have it or not, who knows, right? But uh, that kind of stuff is more common than you think. I have, a cousin that has, I have a cousin that has webbed toes, believe it or not. Marge Simpson has webbed toes, if, you, if you're a Simpsons fan. I have a friend that has a, his toe, it's like his pinky toe is thrown out to the side off of his... Um, like is it damaged or growth? Was it damaged or grow? Did it grow that way? It grew that way. That's weird. Um, there was a there was a story in the news the other day that I I read someone in I forget where it was I forget where it was um, found a snake that had a rudimentary leg with claws on it coming out of its side, right? Um, so the whole suite of genes to grow a leg turned back on in the snake and it, it, it grew a single leg coming out of its side. A, f a full reptilian leg was coming out of the side of it, just one, right? So this kind of stuff happens all the time, right? Cell uh, mutations, DNA mutations, 
miscodings, misreadings, that kind of stuff happens all the time. Okay, more, more, more frequently than you would like to admit or think. It's complex. All right, um, so earlier I was talking about how to get transmembrane proteins in that, uh, in that membrane in the first place, okay? And I was kind of alluding to the fact that it has something to do with how you make a protein in the rough ER, right? And the Golgi has a bit of involvement with it as well. Let's say that, we're, well, we're going to make a protein, so it has to involve the rough ER, right? Um, it's going to be a protein that's compartmentalized and embedded in a membrane, so it has to involve a ribosome that is in the rough ER, not just a ribosome, right? It has to actually involve the rough ER, right, in order to do that. So here you will have some of the rough ER down here. You'll take uh, a messenger RNA strand, okay, send it to one of these ribosomes, read it, okay, and instead of just letting that protein just kind of be extruded into the rough ER, you can kind of direct it to stop halfway, right? As you build that protein, you can start threading it through that membrane and then kind of stop halfway. You know, you build one half of it on the inside of the membrane and the other half of it on the outside. All right? Then what you do after you've done that, now you have a protein, right, that spans a phospholipid bilayer. Make a vesicle out of it. Send that vesicle over here to the Golgi. Okay, let the Golgi do whatever kind of post-processing that it needs to do on it. The Golgi will make a vesicle out of it, send it up to the phospholipid bilayer cell membrane, fuse that vesicle with it, and presto, you have a transmembrane protein, okay, on the cell membrane. So that membrane initially started with rough ER. That membrane then made it to be part of the Golgi, okay, then a vesicle was made out of that membrane, and it was fused with the cell membrane out here at the top, right? So, like I said, these parts, because everything is made in this endomembrane system out of phospholipid, they're very interchangeable. You can fuse vesicles with each other and exchange parts that way very, very easily, including making transmembrane and surface proteins on the outside of a cell by doing <coughs> the exact same thing. Just build the protein in place, make a vesicle out of it, and fuse it with the cell membrane, which is pretty neat, don't you think? Where would the smoothie where would the smoothie are? Uh, well, for, if we're making proteins, right, we wouldn't be employing the use of it, right? right? If we were doing more lipid-based yeah, things, right? Every cell pretty much has every organelle, so as far as I know, right? It'd be doing something over here, some fat sugar conversion or some toxin removal. Definitely playing some sort of role. All your cells have toxins that need to be removed. Look how you live your life. Look what you eat. Look what you do to yourself. All right. So that's the endomembrane system. You should be able to describe, right, identify and describe the components of it. This almost sounded like a test question, didn't it? Peroxisomes containing peroxide detox. All right. So other structures in the cytoplasm that are not part of the endomembrane system uh, include your primary energy converters. When I say your, I'm talking about all eukaryotes on Earth here. Um, you really only have the one, right, the mitochondria. Um, plants have both mitochondria and chloroplasts. Fungi pretty much just have mitochondria, okay? So... Oftentimes, students, for some reason, always get this wrong, so I'll, I'll try to do what I can to make sure you don't do that. They'll say that animals have mitochondria and plants have chloroplasts, and 
although that's not incorrect. Plants have mitochondria as well, and so do fungi. Don't forget about the fungi. And fungi are not plants. They're their own thing, mitochondria bearing, all right? So virtually all eukaryotes contain mitochondria. Some of them that we call the plants also have the chloroplast. So you can kind of more accurately think about it that way. All eukaryotes out there um, have the mitochondria. There are some uh, eukaryotes out there that have secondarily lost the mitochondria for a variety of strange reasons. Um, if you're living exclusively in an anaerobic environment, your mitochondria can't do anything for you anyway, right? Uh, so, why, so why bother with them is the thinking. Uh, so your mitochondria, you are using them to convert energy. Now, you can convert energy a little bit on your own. Okay, through the process of glycolysis that we'll be talking about in a couple of weeks, you, by yourself, without your mitochondria, can take a molecule of glucose and you can break it apart. And in doing so, you can get some ATP out of it. For every molecule of glucose you break apart, you can get about three or four molecules of ATP out of it. Okay, so one molecule of glucose gives you three or four molecules of ATP. Hey, that's not so bad. At least it's, you know, you're getting something out of it. Um, you end up with uh, a lot of weird metabolic byproducts like pyruvate. Um, and you'll want to get rid of that pyruvate. So what you have to do, you have to ditch that pyruvate and convert it into something else. You convert it, that pyruvate into lactic acid, right? And if you're doing a lot of that kind of respiration, which we're going to call anaerobic respiration, you make a little bit of ATP and you end up making a lot of lactic acid and you feel sore the next day when you do that, right? You get this lactic acid buildup in your muscles and bad things happen. Um, or you can take that pyruvate and you can do something else with it, right? You can do a couple of little biochemical conversions on it, all very simple and all very free in terms of having to pay for them, and you can give that pyruvate to your mitochondria. Now, if you do that, okay, if you give those two pyruvate molecules that you get from breaking that glucose apart and you give it to your mitochondria along with some oxygen, they can squeeze 32 more ATP molecules out of that. 32, okay? So if you don't want to use your mitochondria, that's fine, but you're only going to be making four molecules of ATP for every molecule of sugar. Or you can employ your mitochondria and you can make a sum total of 36. So which would you rather do? Use the mitochondria, right? The downside is that those things take a lot of oxygen to do that, okay? So if you're using your mitochondria to respire and make that ATP, then we call that aerobic respiration, okay? Uh, now, mitochondria are kind of weird. They do this conversion between glucose and ATP. That's fine, right? Or at least they assist in that conversion from glucose to ATP. Um, mitochondria have their own DNA. It's circular, and it looks like bacterial DNA, okay? They have their own ribosomes, okay, that are not like your ribosomes. Um, if they're going to be having their own DNA, which they're going to be making their own messenger RNA out of, which they're going to be making their own proteins out of, they're going to need their own ribosomes, okay? So their genome cannot use your ribosomes, okay? Your genome cannot use their ribosomes, okay? So DNA and ribosomes are not being able to be crossed between the mitochondria and, and you, all right? They have their own reproductive cycle. They will undergo binary fission, just like bacteria will, okay? And they have a double phospholipid bilayer membrane, just like the nucleus does, okay? Probably for very different reasons, but maybe not. Protection, right? Protection. All right, so mitochondria. 
If we look at chloroplasts, they do a lot of the same stuff. The nature of the energy conversion is a little bit different. They're not converting from chemical energy into chemical energy like the mitochondria is. It's converting from electromagnetic radiation, as you know, into chemical energy. It's doing this sunlight to glucose conversion. Now, chloroplasts are kind of weird because they have their own DNA, which is small and circular. Chloroplasts have their own ribosomes. Chloroplasts have their own reproductive cycle, their own birth and death cycle, of their, all, all their own. If we have a bacteria, its cell membrane is made of what? Uh, Phospholipid bilayer, thank you. Right? If we go ahead and phagocytose that, right? if we undergo the process of endocytosis and bring that in, and we wrap that okay, in a vesicle, now that has two phospholipid bilayers, okay? one of which is the initial cell membrane of the bacteria. The others, or the other one on the outside of that, is derived from that initial uh, endocytosis process. Okay, so one is theirs and one is yours, if you want to think about it that way, in terms of the, where ultimately these phospholipid bilayers come from. Okay, so DNA is circular, like bacterial DNA. Um, if you look at the evolutionary relationships between life on Earth, earlier on in the first or second day of class, I had that, uh, that evolutionary tree of the three domains of life, and the chloroplasts and the mitochondria are kind of couched right up there in the, in the garden variety bacteria, okay? Uh, so evolutionarily, their DNA is very similar to the DNA of, of, of garden variety bacteria. They have their own unique ribosomes, and they look a lot like bacterial ribosomes. So what's going on here, right? Billions of years ago, right, uh, there was uh, endo, um, uh, a cell engulfing, right, a phagocytosis, um, endocytosis process that kind of went a little bit funny, right? One of your ancestors strictly speaking, genetically speaking, engulfed a bacteria. And rather than taking it apart and using it for energy, um, it somehow managed to discover that it does a better job of converting chemical energy into ATP than it does by itself. So rather than taking it apart, right, as a fuel source of its own, it can get more ATP ultimately just by incorporating it into its own metabolism okay, that's good, right? You do a better job of making ATP than I do. I'll just kind of keep you inside, and I'll give you a lot of glucose and a lot of oxygen, and you can have a good place to live. And as a benefit, I'll just get a lot of ATP out of it, right? So you've essentially outsourced energy conversion to the bacteria. Seriously, you have, right? So you're living in this mutualistic relationship between uh, your own cells and these bacteria. And this was originally an idea that was uh, brought forth and made popular by a woman named Lynn Margulis, whose other claim to fame is that she was Carl Sagan's first wife. Anybody know Carl Sagan? The cosmos, billions and billions guy, right? Um, uh, when I was watching, I watched Cosmos when it first came out in the mid-70s, and I used to sit in the kitchen with my mother and watch it, right? Uh, and that show, more than any other with Carl Sagan and his billions and billions, more than anything else wanted me to, is what made me want to be a scientist, right? At, when I was watching Cosmos, I said, I want to be like that, right? Uh, and, and it was downhill ever since. So blame Carl Sagan and Cosmos, right? And, you know, indirectly, probably Lynn Margulis as well. Um, this is referred to as endosymbiotic theory, right? Bacteria... Uh, ultimately have been uh, brought into the cell via endosymbiosis, okay, uh, or via this mutualistic relationship to be an endosymbiont inside of your own cells, okay? So 
you're breathing the oxygen you're not using it on your own, you're giving it to the mitochondria. The mitochondria are using it, combining it with the glucose that you're giving it to make a lot of ATP, which you're then using um, to go ahead and make yourself big and complicated. More, more of us than others. More, more of us more so than others. All right, so endosymbiotic theory is what it's referred to. We good? Good. They can have their own disorders, right? You can get a mitochondrial disorder uh, where your mitochondria will have an extremely high rate of biochemical action, right? And it'll be really, really hot all the time. Um, and you'll use thousands of calories a day that you'll have to just to keep yourself going. They use so much uh, glucose. You can have under, right, underreacting mitochondria, and you'll, uh, you'll not need that much calories, and it'll be chilly, right? So you can get mitochondrial disorders. They're kind of strange when you do so, but you can get them. What? There, there are, right? Um, I don't know any of the names of them. There aren't that many, right? But, but there are some. For uh, one of the, um, I'll, I'll end with this little, little statement right here. Um, there's urban legend that if spontaneous human combustion were to actually be real, that it might be a mitochondrial disorder. Okay, energetically, you have the biochemical materials in place to spontaneously combust if your mitochondria start converting energy uncontrolled and at an extremely high rate, right? Usually the people who are found to have spontaneously combusted did so on the couch with a lit cigarette in their hand, right? Uh, and, and a lot of polyester around, right? So um, authentically documented cases of a spontaneous human combustion are kind of rare. But the thinking is that if it does actually exist and not in just some kind of X-Files kind of way, that it might be a mitochondrial disorder or some weird wonky thing that happens with the mitochondria where it starts converting energy at such a high rate that it literally, you, you burst, into, burst into flames, so to speak, right? So not to say that it, that's what it is or not to say that it actually happens, but if it were to happen, that's one of the few ways that you could actually, that, that it could actually occur, right? Come up with another way to burst into flames spontaneously that doesn't involve mitochondria. You just don't, without mitochondria, you just don't convert energy that quickly, enough to generate Self-immolation, right? Uh, so if it is to happen, right, mitochondria are most likely at the, at the root of it because that's what's doing the bulk energy conversion in your body, all right? Um, so take 20 minutes. Um, make sure you have your closed-toed shoes on, and I'll see you over in the lab and where we will uh, osmote and diffuse. <laughs>